True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to my interview with Mark Shaw, author of Give Us More Guns. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Sean Trainery, Agnes B., Rulene Kruger, and Colleen Harrigan-Masonholder for their support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, where if you purchase 400 rand or more and use the code TCSA10 at checkout, you get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 rands worth of brand new release, true crime and crime fiction books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. My interview today is around a topic that I tend to stay away from on the podcast. Gang crime and other forms of organised crime are not really topics I'm familiar enough with to do justice to. So when Jonathan Bull Publishers told me about their new book, Give Us More Guns, by Mark Shaw, I wondered whether it would really be a good fit for the podcast. Let's just say I didn't need to worry. If you're a South African with any level of interest in any type of crime in our country, you need to not only read this book, but hear Mark Shaw talk about his work. Mark Shaw is the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. He was previously the National Research Foundation Professor of Justice and Security at the University of Cape Town, Department of Criminology. Mark worked for 10 years at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime including as Inter-Regional Advisor, Chief of the Criminal Justice Reform Unit, and the Global Programme Against Transnational Organised Crime, with extensive fieldwork. Before joining the UN, Mark held a number of positions in the South African government and civil society, where he worked on issues of public safety and urban violence in the post-apartheid transition. He holds a PhD from the University of Advertisrant and has published widely on organised crime, security and justice reform issues. Mark has done a lot of important work with a lot of important people. 
across the world. But perhaps the work with the most tangible value, at least in my opinion, are the books that he has written that pull back the curtain on the world of organized crime in South Africa and reveal how deep its roots run and how interconnected it is in so many different facets of our society. Given that my focus is not usually on these topics, although I do hear about cases that seem to be linked to organized crime, the recent tragic murder of Detective Charles Kinnear being one, I don't always follow them closely. And this book would make me realize that I was definitely not putting the puzzle pieces together correctly. To put it mildly, this book blew my mind. And as I would tell Mark, I think it is something that every single South African needs to read to understand what is happening behind the scenes of the incidents we see reported in the media. I moved to the Western Cape almost seven years ago, and although I'd always known that it was South Africa's hotspot for gang crime activity, I'd never realized why that was or at least why the gangs here are quite as powerful and violent as they are. In Mark Shaw's book, I would learn that the murder of Detective Charles Kinnear, as well as the scourge of violent crime in the Western Cape and its overflow into the rest of the country, was preempted by one very important event. In 2007, a police officer, Colonel Christian Prinsloo, who was nearing retirement, decided that it seemed an awful waste to have a huge haul of decommissioned SAPS firearms being destroyed, and instead he decided to start selling them. During his later trial, he would claim that he had no idea where the guns were going, but I highly doubt that. The guns, thousands of high-caliber deadly weapons, which were intended to protect the citizens of South Africa, were sold to gang bosses, predominantly in the Western Cape. But they would leave a trail of corpses across the country. The impact of this crime has been incalculable. But as Mark Shaw relays, it resulted in our gangs and organized crime syndicates going from an annoyance with violence ideals to highly armed armies of domestic terrorists. The armament meant that gang bosses could increase their reach. Drug dealing increased. They moved into other industries, nightclubs, the taxi industry, private security, and we found ourselves in the situation we're in today. In reading this book, I would come to understand how deeply ingrained and inextricably linked organized crime is to so many of the things that are wrong with our country, and I will never look at an article about gang activity in the same way again. I had the exceptional honor of speaking with Mark Shaw about his book and his work, and here's my interview with him. I think perhaps this book is most valuable for citizens like me who may have heard of the isolated incidents you refer to in the book, but have no idea how these pieces fit together until you thread together the links for us. When you write books like Give Us More Guns, 
Is the intention predominantly to educate South African citizens on matters they may not have drawn links between by themselves? Nicole, thanks very much also for your kind comments on the book. It's really a good question, actually. I am not a journalist and, and have a sort of research background, but I've, I've also worked in, uh, I guess, policy positions and, and implementing programs. And I guess my approach is to try and tell a bigger story and to, to show how individual incidents fit into what you might call a kind of ecosystem of crime. And a little bit my frustration, I mean, frustration is probably the wrong word, but the sense that, you know, as a South African, you just get thousands of reports of crime and it just seems uncontrollable in a way. By talking and describing the ecosystem and the drivers, I want to do two things. I mean, firstly, show the connections and show the story, give this broader narrative. But also, and more importantly, I want to say that there are solutions because if you can understand what the drivers are, however complicated, it gives a, an opportunity to, to talk about solutions. And, and in discussion with uh, Jeremy Borain, for example, at Jonathan Ball, you know, the discussion is, well, is this another depressing book around crime? And the answer is yes, well, this is a really, you know, this ecosystem is really worth describing because that's how it is. But at the same time, there's hope in describing it because understanding is the beginning of as a as a community, I suppose, doing something about it. Absolutely. And I think that unless we're able to understand the problem, we cannot acknowledge or even start to solve the problem. So understanding how all the pieces fit together really helps to start that conversation about exactly how we fix this. Nicole, when you're talking about a country with you know, homicide rates in some places, which are just extreme, as the book outlines, then it's clearly the system that is broken. It's not just a random set of incidents. Of course, everybody would understand that. But the day-to-day -day coverage and the trauma of it all sort of mitigates against taking a, a, a broader narrative ecosystem uh, discussion. And a lot of the political and police discussion is very reactive. You know, one more case, we, we must solve this. Of course, that's, that's appropriate. But... The issue for me is actually we, we could preempt much of this. And the book tells the story exactly of how that might be done, I hope. I must honestly say that although I'd probably heard mentions of the Christian Prince matter, it never really hits home for me. I am appalled that firstly, he only got 18 years in prison. And then he didn't even serve a third of that sentence. His actions had enormous ramifications for millions of people. If Princely hadn't flooded the market with his guns, would it be safe to assume that South African gangs would not be armed to the extent they are today? Or do you think that, given our failing administration system, if it wasn't him, it was going to be someone else? Uh, Nicole, no question. I was appalled too. I understand partly the reduction of the sentence or at least going into witness protection in the sense that he owes an explanation that might convict others. There's no doubt in my mind, speaking to people on the Cape Flats, both in communities traumatized by this and the gang environment more generally, that the guns made a, a huge difference. 
And of course, that stands to reason. If you channel in thousands of guns into an already violent environment, it's going to get more violent, particularly because it's built on violence. It relies on violence. Violence is in the DNA of gang territory, drugs, uh, controlled by the bosses, etc., as I tried to describe. And so the guns transformed the nature of, of gangs. And it took, it took you know, there, there was a delay, but, you know, there, then there was this upsurge in violence. I think the point I also want to make, as, as you would have got very clearly from the book, is that state guns have been flowing into the criminal underworld for some time. Prince Lua must have known that. He, he opened the tap a bit more fully. And there's still evidence of, of state guns uh, flowing. Not to the same extent, clearly, but, you know, there was a case in a, a gun from an amnesty season in Hanover Park uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, those are sort of warning flares that this continues to occur. I mean, just to, to make another point, which I think is crucial, gangs, gang bosses, whatever you want to call them, to get bulk guns cheaply is a gift. If you are stealing guns in burglaries and the like, of course, they are accessing that. And I understand the debate around you know, guns moving from from uh, individual owners in, into into the hands of the underworld, but bulk guns and bulk guns bought cheaply becomes a you know sort of like moths to a flame, as occurred in this particular uh, uh, case. So yes, I and I hope the book shows that the gangs transformed the nature of of gangsterism and violence on the Cape Flats. There were many things about this book that shocked me. But I think one of the biggest surprises was how deeply entrenched gangsterism is in everything, from nightclubs to the taxi industry to links in upper police structures and even in governments. I must say that it made me wonder to what extent these gangs are actually calling the shots in our country. They aren't just involved in drugs and the sex trade anymore. They have fingers in so many pies. I think this is a concern. And, you know, the other pies, are, of course, the property market, money invested in, in a number of other things because they have made so much uh, money and the linkage between money flows and corruption in the criminal justice system and in uh, the political environment. I I mean, there's two sides to this, which, you know, just as as someone who's, sort of been embedded in it for a while. The first is you can really get paranoid about this. And indeed, in, in writing the book, you, you sort of, the, the Cape Flats itself, and when you start to embed yourself and talk to people, you sort of, as I try to describe in the book, if you may recall, you sort of get jumpy, you know, you sort of really are not always sure whom to trust. You know, I having spoken to other people doing the sort of work, journalists, authors, people trying to understand, you know, the sort of paranoia it, it does develop. I think... It's also worth bearing in mind that there's a positive side to this, that yes, the boundaries have grayed in many places, but there's also people standing up and responding. And, and I must say, I've been very heartened since the book has come out, both by people contacting me and, and, and also by just generally what's occurred. I'm not saying it's the book that resulted in this, but there's you know the number of key cases, uh, the arrest of Modak, the, 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 the charging of, of other key let's call them sort of gray business world, underworld figures, suggests that there is a fight back going on. It's taken a time to get momentum, but it is underway. But I think the last decade really did allow a lot of these barriers to erode. 
and a, a sense of impunity developed amongst uh, gang bosses, underworld figures. And if you speak around and to people, you know, people say, well, I, I can get off. I'll, I'll pay off a policeman. I'll, you know, the, the system, everyone is corrupt. That phrase used all the time, everyone is corrupt. Now, I'm not sure that that's actually true. But the problem is that once, like a cancer, a certain number of people become corrupt, it's very hard for good people, uh, you know, the story of Kinnear is a case, to stand up, that nobody knows who to trust anymore, etc. I'm hoping that we're at the point of pushing back some of those uh, boundaries. And I'm not naive at all about this. I'm optimistic, cautiously, that we, we might be able to, to be able to do that. And if we don't, However, the consequences in the longer term uh, will be severe. I think Mark makes a good point there. And as I see more people get arrested around the murder of Detective Charles Kinnear, I also get the feeling that something different is happening. Something perhaps we haven't seen before. After reading the book, I realize that this might just be the precipice on which we as a country start to push back against gangs and organized crime. Of course, Princely's actions have significant effects that can be quantified by the murders committed with the guns we know he sold. But what strikes me the most are the effects that we can't really quantify. South Africans are wondering why so-called ordinary crimes like muggings are becoming so violent where someone could be shot or stabbed to death for a cell phone, for instance. Personally, I think it can probably be linked back to the levels of violence in communities. We know for a fact that when children are exposed to high levels of violence in their communities and homes, they become desensitized to it. And if they do go on to live criminal lives themselves, they're far more likely to be more violent. I can't help but think that the increasing levels of violent crime we're seeing across the board must in some way be linked to the wave of violence that's become the norm for so many children and teenagers. Yes, I firmly believe in the sort of generational impact of violence, for, for want of a, uh, a better phrasing, that children who, who grow up in an, a violent environment and who are exposed to violence have the potential then to be perpetrators themselves. I'm very cautious in saying that, however, because there, of course, you don't want to victimize people in the sense that I know many people who have grown up in violent environments and are anything but violent. But of course, this general um, sense that we are a violent society, that the symbols of the crime boss is very attractive in some parts parts of, of the country and parts of the Cape Flats, as we've discussed, you know, the, the, the kind of shoes you wear, the clothes, the, the jewelry, the cars, the girls, and combined with that is the guns. So guns are enormously powerful, well, they're symbols of power. So I, I think there is this kind of cyclical nature which, which we need to break. And of course, restricting the, the volume of firearms in the hands of, of criminals is is absolutely one component of that not not the not the only one there's a kind of sense that in in my view that violence begets violence that and, and, and Nicole just to step back a bit because it's a it's really an important point for me is that 
South Africa's homicide rate peaked around 1994. Of course, there was quite a lot of political violence, et cetera, as you know, and then had a long, slow, perhaps too slow, but slow decline into the sort of area of 30 per 100,000 in 2011, 2012, and then started this dramatic upward movement. Just to say that the decline of the homicide rate was, in criminological terms, hugely important. It was the slow ratcheting down of violence in society until it reached a certain point where for a variety of reasons, the, the book makes the argument too, it increased. So to emphasize that the, the, there hasn't been this upsurge of violence since 1994, there was in fact this steady decline until a particular period where a lot of governance failures came together, I would argue. And in that sense, the homicide rate becomes a kind of barometer of the health of our society. And that's why we, we, we need to act on it. What's very clear is that guns have increased the homicide and murder rate because they just make it easier to kill people. And, and so now, you know, the latest figures show that they've overtaken uh, sharp, blunt objects, knives, etc., as as being the tool most, most likely for, for South Africans to die by. You're more likely to die by murder by gun than in a car accident. I saw a figure the other day. So, you know, these are clearly something that we can do something about. And therein lies yet another very important point for me. So many people see the surge in the homicide rates in South Africa as something that happened post-1994. And with that narrative in mind, we attach that idea to many other assumptions. But the truth is, the homicide rates in South Africa post-1994 declined. This became a safer country to live in. We were on the right track. And then, through accumulation of events around 2010, everything changed. I could point out the political changes that also occurred around 2010 in our country, but I'm sure I don't have to draw that picture for you. And now I am more likely to die by a bullet in this country than a car accident. I won't deny that this makes me angry, because the greed of a few has resulted in the misery of many. But the fact that we have made major and overriding changes in this country before, and successfully done so, gives me hope. Mark, I know that you mention in the book that when gang bosses are confronted about the deaths of innocent children due to gang violence, for the most part, they believe that these children were somehow involved in the drug trade in any case, as though that somehow justifies it. In your dealings with these people, have you ever seen any of them admit that innocent people die because of their actions, or do they just see it as collateral damage? It's a really good question. And as you know, I tried and have thought quite a bit around this in the context of the book. I honestly think for some, it's just business and recruitment of younger people into the gang business and the, the process in which people get killed, sort of young, young, not only young, but is just seen as, as how it is. And so perhaps, it, you know, collateral damage is the way uh, to, to describe it. And that, I have to say, depresses me terribly because it simply means that territorial drug control 
uh, has a cost in human life um, and, and people make profits from that. Of course, what gang bosses do say, and that's also implicit in your question, is they say, well, you know, the lighties are violent. And as, as I've written both in this book and elsewhere, violence is part of the economy, both because of territorial control, but because it's a way to control members in the gang. You know, young testosterone-filled uh, men, violence is a way to use them, to direct them outwards rather than direct them um, at, at the gang leaders. And these are quite fragile arrangements very often. And so it's interesting for me that gang bosses let gang violence run, but then try and contain it. They, they are talking to themselves at a higher level in any event. So it's a very, very complicated kind of political economy around violence, where violence is both necessary to maintain turf, necessary to keep gang members occupied, but gang bosses themselves are conscious that it can turn on them. I've been told that gangs recruit children as young as seven to carry out murders for them because they know that children of that age can't be prosecuted. Is this something that you've seen to be true? I mean, I've been told this kind of story, you know, numerous times. So there's there's probably an element of truth to it. I'm always quite cautious, as you can tell from the book, because a sort of mythology develops around gangsterism. So you, you sort of want to see the evidence for a, for a claim like that. There's, there's no doubt that young people, 15, 16, 17 and older, are, are used. And used is, is the right word, because people carrying out hits a, a previous book I wrote covered are, are absolutely expendable for gang bosses. They are very vulnerable to, to dying themselves. So it's, you know, it's not so much the, yes, there's a point about young people not being prosecutable, but gang bosses have their, you know, their tentacles into the criminal justice system to get people sprung it, to be prosecutable. I think the main point is that they don't turn on, on the people who have recruited them. And they don't give evidence against them, which is why hitmen of a particular category. I mean, I, I think we need to, the idea of the sort of James Bond style hitman is, is largely a myth. As the case, you know, if you've been following this latest case around the attempted uh, hits on William Booth, you know, it's a kind of uh, keystone crook story. You know, the guy falls in a hole, he has to go to hospital, etc. Those are really some of the real stories around, around hits. It doesn't mean people don't die. It just means this idea of sort of fit balaclava-driven hitmen, which sort of sometimes accompanies this narrative, is is a true on is true on occasion, but but not always. Oh yes, for sure. There are some cases where it's clearly intended to be a hit, but when you see the CCTV footage or you hear the description in the media, you just think, um, okay, where did they find these clowns? <laughs> yes. And, this, and that is one of them, I have to say, because, you know, the, it's really, a, I mean, if it wasn't, it's, it's funny if it wasn't so sad, you know, the, the sort of dysfunctionality of hits and, you know, but there is a professional crowd. But for the most part, we are talking this kind of recruitment, payment, uh, etc. Organized crime is, of course, a subject that you've studied and researched throughout much of your career. And as we see in the book, that means that you often get down and dirty at grassroots level and speak to the gang bosses and members. What has this work meant for you as a human being? Have you ever felt that your own life may be at risk? This is a question I'm often asked. Actually. I think for me, 
it's an important area of research. And I am generally a very, you know, because people say, isn't this depressing working day in and day out? Yes, and there's an element of that. But I also want to do it and have done it, obviously. I mean, this, this is the, the area where I've focused my work, is that I think a difference can be made here. And I genuinely think that research and policy analysis and painting the bigger picture, as we started to discuss, Nicole, is something incredibly worthwhile, that it's part of a, a broader discussion. I'm not arrogant enough to think that it's on its own or even in a big way makes a difference. But the, the story and the defining of a policy discussion in a sane kind of uh, way using data is, is, an, is a very important part of this process. And, and that's what it means to me. And, and that's what I'm doing. I mean, we have a very big global organization now, a think tank on organized crime uh, uh, doing this work globally. And, and what's fascinating for me as a South African, okay, I've worked for the UN in many places, but the parallels between many places, both failure and success. Has my life been at risk? I don't think so. I mean, I, I have been in the course of a career in, in a lot of fragile places, I would say. I am careful. I feel that I have learned from others and from my own experience about how to do this. I, I do get responses to, to what I write. I think that's part of the, the business of doing the kind of work. But no, I don't think my life is at risk. And, and it would be arrogant for me to say that in the sense when so many people live in much more contested and, and other in, within communities which are violent, Whereas I have an ability to go in to, to research, to reflect, and, and, and in a sense, withdraw. So but I feel that's the small thing that I can add in, into the discussion, to, to, be, to be very honest. And you mentioned your work with the UN and seeing how organized crime plays out in other countries. And I think what concerns me the most about the increasing levels of power that organized crime seems to have in our country is what I see when I look at other countries where organized crime almost runs the show. In many of the countries in South America, for instance, police and government seem to be, for the most part, highly influenced by drug and gang bosses. Is South Africa at risk of heading in that direction? The honest answer is yes. I, I mean, South Africa has some advantages. The reality of, say, Central America and Mexico is there are guns streaming southwards and drugs streaming northwards in, in a context, particularly in Central America, of low economic growth, high levels of extortion and criminal control. And the infiltration, let's just say, of, of criminal groups into, into government at all levels and into the security sector and the criminal justice system. It's extremely difficult to respond. And we fund as the global initiative which i now direct we fund you know a range of projects in these environments including one which is just so unbelievably courageous it's sort of mothers following up on on we are not, you know we're not the only supporters but we uh, for us we are proud to be associated with it you know the mothers of the disappeared mothers following up on on children that have been killed by by uh, crime groups cartels and the like and it's truly a traumatic uh, kind of environment brought on by the massive profits that are made uh, from 
you know, the Andean region up to, to North America in, in the drug trade. Where South Africa is in a better position is that it's not a transit route for drugs to the same extent. However, however, and I think this is important, it has other challenges. One is the diversity of its criminal markets. So, you know, wildlife trafficking, it is a transit route to some extent for, for drugs. Its history of violence, the degree to which there is an overlay between uh, criminal networks and the political, let's, let's put it that way. Uh, so there are very big vulnerabilities in the South African context. And although you, you may be surprised to hear, our homicide rate in some places is higher than Latin America, driven by, by different things, yes, but the same constellation of factors, inequality, guns, drugs, uh, criminal governance, uh, weak uh, uh, criminal justice, corrupted uh, uh, policing in some parts is also present. So I, I think in some parts of the country, there's a real danger of this. One of the, the, the flares for me of, of this, Nicole, if I can say, is, is police corruption. And you see that very much in Central America and elsewhere, the erosion of the, let's call it the frontiers between the good and the bad. And you yourself have said, you know, you don't want to quite characterize it as that because it's almost too simplistic. But when there's an erosion between the front end of policing and what you and the criminal economy and that erosion is easy to occur because the criminal economy is driven by cash and the temptations are always there for ordinary police officers often drawn from those communities that's when you are when the front ed, end of the state literally crumbles and what we're seeing in south africa to some degree is a fight back there i don't know if we're out of the woods yet but it's it's the, the ongoing court cases, what you see every day is absolutely crucial. So the integrity of the system responding uh, to organized crime is absolutely key and key to maintaining. And that's really a narrative that's played out across the world in most countries at some time, even in North America during the 70s, 80s and 90s. We saw police departments in Los Angeles and New York being well-known for their corruption and involvement in organized crime. So it's not even just isolated to sort of poorer countries. But I guess it's the response to that that matters. And yes, as a country, we are far more vulnerable to this sort of thing for many reasons. You know, what's interesting on this, Nicole, is often the, the fight back or the reversal of these things occurs around a particular incident. Uh, the, the, I think the very best example is uh, the, the murder of Giovanni Falcone in Italy. You know, and this saw this, you know, a, 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 the, the Italian state had to respond because of a community outcry. And I, I think the Kinnear murder, which you obviously know about, represents something of that in South Africa. Again, uh, um, we're talking different contexts, but the sense that a line was crossed, um, you know, there is a kind of truce between the police and gangs. There are sort of red lines. And then killing a senior officer, you know, it demands a response from the state. It's almost like organized crime in its arrogance overstepped the mark. Um, and then the state has to respond. And those are key sort of tipping points in the discussion. And you see some of that, you know, the the senior officers going to court, et cetera, et cetera, in, in, uh, in the response. So... Let's see how this plays out. But this is, I think, part of the unfolding narrative around 
the pushback, as we discussed earlier. Oh, yes, absolutely. That certainly seems that way. I know we discussed hitmen a little earlier on in our conversation, and your discussion of the operation of hitmen for hire in the book was quite chilling and eye-opening. I know you wrote a book called Hitmen for Hire, which I've not read yet, but definitely intend to. We often see murders that seem to scream that it's a hit. I guess the standard M.O. seems to be these guys dressed in black on motorbikes. And these guys really will kill anyone. They don't seem to be aligned to a specific group. And they'll just basically be hired guns for the highest bidder. Would gang bosses make use of hitmen like this when they don't want to be linked to a murder? As I've said before, I mean, for me, and, and there's quite an interesting global academic literature, amazingly enough, uh, around this. And you can say there are sort of three categories. You're sort of the high level, probably former military, etc. Other, other uh, people with a, a sort of practice who are relatively independent. The middle crowd who are linked to gangs or gang bosses, or in South Africa's case, taxi bosses. And then the third category, which are sort of I guess the kind of palooka category, people trying it out for the first time, over-advertising their wares, etc. In South Africa, the middle category is, is you know, the, the one most, with some exceptions, used by gang bosses. And, and the price can be steep, you know, half a million rand for, for, for a hit, etc. What happens is, I mean, there's a couple of points in the, in, which are worth making. The first is that quite apart from the narrative, the majority of hitmen are connected into the gang system. So they're quite vulnerable. They are asked to conduct a hit. They know they are vulnerable, in my experience of speaking to them, because they then carry evidence and they uh, often die. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 the sense that and you look in a number of cases where, where, where people are eliminated afterwards uh, because that eliminates the, the link. Gang bosses, uh, um, you know, broadly writ, may use uh, hitmen from the opposition gang. Uh, the, you know, the, people are very clever to mask their their tracks, um, and uh, so it's it's not that gang X always uses the hitmen of gang X. There's this weird cross pollination and cross hiring between you know different elements within. Uh, the, the gang underworld, which is why I, I again mention that there's contact between key figures, uh, for better and worse, at the top of the gang environment, above this what you might describe as a kind of morass of violence. And there's a, a sort of culture of the hits, which I try to explore in the, in the first book about how money is exchanged for the commercialization of murder, if you like, and how this occurred, how it permeated, you know, the taxi industry, the, the political environment, most notably in KwaZulu-Natal, but also in, in the sort of gang milieu. So, uh, um, yes, this is a feature. But as we discussed, I'm very eager not to romanticize it. And, and you, you know, I think, Nicole, from this book, again, that's why to take out the sort of, I don't know if you want a better word, the, the sort of James Bond element to it and to point to the case which is in front of court now, which is kind of almost laughable in its unprofessionalism. But, but those are still murders in exchange for cash or other things. And that's the economy that, that has developed in, in the particular environment. 
The Western Cape is undeniably the biggest hub of gang activity in South Africa, and I've often wondered why that is. Do you think it has to do with Prinsloo's guns being released in the Western Cape predominantly, or is there another reason for that? I would say Prinsloo's guns were just one catalyst, and that the particular, you know, the formation of gangs and organized crime everywhere in the world is largely a historical evolution of a number of factors. Those factors are often about people being marginalized or pushed away by the state and finding ways to organize amongst themselves. It's often the case that old community forms of organization and structure are broken and replaced by criminal formations. And it is about what illicit markets come to dominate particular environments. And finally, states often play an un, a, a intended or unintended role in the formation of organized crime. Now, all of those issues are present in the Western Cape. And the roots of gangsterism lie in forced removals, as it has been documented, and then the evolution of first community and social and then criminalized formations from, from that period onwards. And the embedding of those forms of social organization over time and their resourcing through criminal markets and and their strengthening. And that's the reason why the Western Cape uh, has the the greatest problem of of gangsterism and and organized crime. That does not mean that there's not, you know, there's a historical criminal underworld in Durban, a different one in Johannesburg, one in, you know, elsewhere in, in country. But there's particular contextual factors in the Western Cape that have given rise to the particular shape of what we are talking about. We really should emphasize, of course, that at the top of the underworld, these are figures that move around nationally. You know, um, there was a lot of discussion of Bedford View as, as a place where gang bosses of a particular a, a type uh, coalesced. All of that's true. There's a set of geographic and uh, social political factors um, th- that are present that allow that. But the Western Cape historically has evolved in this particular direction. And so I would argue that the Western Cape has become a particular key pillar of the overall national underworld, and that has historical antecedents, if you like. As you've mentioned, if we focus too much on the extent of the infiltration into our police and governments, it can become a bit of a depressing narrative. So now that we know this, where do we go from here? What, in your opinion, needs to be done to go about cleaning the ranks of police and government of organized crime links? I think we need sort of decisive political leadership on on this issue. And, And there's really a couple of points to make. The first is the degree to which the police themselves, the corrupting influence in the police was not only about crime, it was about politics. And it's the intermeshing of crime and politics. And I think that's crucial to understand. It's important to say that the underworld and the corrupting of the system, so to speak, does not take place outside of a broader political context. And so we are now seeing the consequences of that. And I I think it, it requires a range of policy responses 
around making the police neutral, non-political, much more professional, going back to the basics of policing. So this is really, you know, the whole narrative from 1994, which was central to the, the police reform process, has, in my view, been lost by a more militarized, the return of military ranks, the, the, the sort of gang-ho, authoritarian-style responses that you often see now. And, and effectively, this is the wrong way to go. So one, one leg has to be the rebuilding of a service-oriented, accountable policing structure. I think we have a long way to go there, but there are people within the system who I think are committed to doing that. On the other side, we need more specialized, investigative, independent, to underscore that point, structures that can target the top end of the criminal economy. And the third element is we need a rethink of our what you might call our national security policy. A lot of the time, what we're thinking about all the time is, you know, the technical details of improving policing or corrupt officers. All of that is essential in these two categories I've mentioned. But we need an overarching policy which focuses on reducing crime. Guns is one part of that. And, uh, uh, you know, investment in childhood education, in taking young people out of the, the sort of gang recruitment system, etc. And in a more strategic response, because what we are doing now is simply reacting to each murder, uh, you know, of course, pushed by, by press coverage and, and politics, essential, but we don't always have to react. We need to reduce the number of cases that we react to in order that we have more resources to react to them. And these are the fundamental principles, in my view, of, of bringing greater security. So I, the point to, to answer your really good question is, it's a reorientation of our security thinking is part of reducing the corruption and the, let's call it the lack of accountability um, of, the, of the kind of policing style that, that we've moved towards. Mark, the average citizen living in South Africa who may not live in an active gang area may think that all of this has nothing to do with them. And perhaps they'll think that as long as gangsters are just killing gangsters, it doesn't affect them. Why should someone living in Santon, for instance, or on a farm, be as deeply concerned about the rising tide of gangsterism and organized crime as someone living in Bornsehirville? And Nicole, that's a really good question. Actually, it's quite often raised, which is, you know, well, as long as it's isolated from me, why should I worry? I think it's fundamentally the wrong response, as your, your question implies, and, and that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's our fellow citizens, and it's people who have been born into and grown in, up in excluded environments where they become subjected to violence and become perpetrators of violence, and that's all of our responsibilities. So just the simple ethical response is the overarching argument, I think, for, for us um, uh, to respond, to make people's lives better, uh, richer, more productive. Secondly, when you maintain, as in, say, Brazil or Central America or Mexico, I know we spoke about Latin American earlier, a, a sort of a, a nurseries of violence, it will affect everybody. So yes, this might well often be a middle-class kind of comment, but violence seeps across all of society. And so it's, it's a very important 
uh, general crime prevention response, and of course the middle class is often the, the most vocal. It's in everybody's interest to improve security uh, for for everybody. And thirdly, it, that there are connections between quite specific forms of the criminal economy and excluded areas. A very good example is the extortion economy in, in the Western Cape. You know, the, the gang muscle on the Cape Flats is connected to the kind of extortion groups who practice it in the center of the city. So this is a kind of tangled web that is not in sort of fenced off blocks. It's a highly integrated system. Money is made from drugs in the Western Cape, which is laundered into the system or, or buys property in the in the finest suburbs of the city and elsewhere. So there's the seepage in, in multiple ways, which is important. And fourthly, organized crime is not something that is conducted only by poor people. Uh, from white-collar crime to a range of criminal formations, I mean, the cases are, I'm not writing on them, but others uh, um, uh, are articulately covering, covering it in journalism and elsewhere whether it's corruption in Eskom um, and the like, this is occurring in all places, and that in turn has a consequence for, for poorer people. So in a sense, we have to respond to, to this problem, if you like, it sounds a bit trite, but holistically, it's everybody's problem ac across the spectrum, and we need a more strategic response to clawing back uh, governance and the rule of law. And I think that Mark hits the nail on the head there. If you believe that the actions of gang bosses in the Western Cape or some other organized crime group have no bearing on your life because you don't live there or you're not likely to get caught in a gang shootout, think again. If you read Give Us More Guns, I can guarantee you that you will close the back cover with a very different view. I had no idea how inextricably linked all of these aspects of our society have become, and it really makes me look at a lot of the cases I've covered in a different way. I think the most important thing that Mark Shaw's book leaves us with, besides essential knowledge, is hope. Because just as an alcoholic can start to work toward recovery when they understand why they drink, Perhaps we as a country can also start to pull ourselves back from this slow decline and take back our country. It was an absolute honor and pleasure to speak with Mark Shaw, and I highly recommend that you get his book, Give Us More Guns. It is a Jonathan Ball publication, and it's available at Take-A-Lot, Loot, and all good bookstores. I'd like to thank Mark Shaw for taking the time to speak with me and also thank you to Jonathan Ball Publishers for setting up the interview. I do hope that you enjoyed this interview. If you did, don't forget to follow the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.